Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Was one of your ancestors a king, queen, prince, princess, duke, duchess, or some other royal personage? Maybe they were a member of the court, a lord or lady-in-waiting. Given the way that family trees work, branch leading to branch, century after century, you just never know. A royal connection could be closer than you think. To help you find out, Ancestry is offering five days of completely free access to all their UK records over this King's Birthday weekend. Over this long weekend, you'll be able to access over 100 million historical records and photographs. You can discover and explore full names, addresses, occupations, ranks, royal and aristocratic titles, and plenty of other tantalizing information. Your five-day Ancestry access also lets you save any of these records and photos to your family tree. Ancestry is offering all of this for free, with no credit card details required. So you've got nothing to lose, and who knows, you may just gain a royal connection. Remember the start date, the 7th of June. Free access ends on the 11th of June. Terms apply. There could be more to your story. Piece it together with Ancestry. This podcast episode contains references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to elders past and present. It's the 7th of June, 1950, and Sydney CIB's Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack is about to interview Norman and Jean Page of Blacktown. Detective Sergeant Jack, who's been with the police since 1928, is a well-respected investigator who, over the past decade, has worked some really big cases. What he's looking into today, though, isn't likely to rank up there with them. Chances are, it's just a run-of-the-mill missing persons case. Usually such matters resolve themselves fairly quickly when the man or woman in question turns up safe and sound. People sometimes just want to go away, have their freedom, not be found for a while. It's no crime to want some time to yourself. That's probably the case with Mrs. Phyllis Mary Page, and her children Norman and Jean, both in their mid-twenties, are probably worrying for no reason. Detective Sergeant Jack meets them and hears what they have to say about their mother. Phyllis is due to turn 50 this August. She's a sensible, sober woman and well-respected in Blacktown. The last they saw of her was on the 2nd of February this year when Phyllis left with her fiancé on a road trip of southern New South Wales bound for Victoria. Her man's name? Frederick Arthur Stevens. Since he and their mother left, they've received just one letter from her, and that was almost four months ago. But Norman has seen Fred, though. This was six weeks ago in Sydney. Then, he said that Phyllis was staying in Adelaide at the Gresham Hotel. But when Norman phoned, they had no record of her. 
When he told Fred this, he said she must have gone to stay with friends in Port Pirie. Detective Sergeant Jack needs to know where Norman saw Fred. He learns it was in the company of Fred's solicitor. His name? Abraham Brindley. On hearing this, the detective's ears surely prick up. In 1945-1946, he prosecuted A. Brindley in the famous conspiracy coupon trials. Brindley was acquitted, but not before he dragged Detective Sergeant Jack's name through the mud in court with vicious allegations of a frame-up. That this Fred Stevens character is involved with a shonky solicitor like him can't be a good thing, at least in this policeman's books. Detective Sergeant Jack asks Norman to come into the CIB and check out some photos. He does, and in the police files, he identifies a mugshot of the man his mother went off to marry. He's not Frederick Arthur Stevens. He's Lionel Charles Thomas, a.k.a. Thomas Edward Croft. This puts a different colour on things. Thomas has form as a crook, a violent crook, in New South Wales and Victoria. He's been convicted of serious crimes, robbery, assault, break and enters. But he's also stood trial three times for murder in Melbourne and once for attempted murder in Sydney. Thomas is suspected of even more. There's the disappearance of Pearl Jackson, who didn't front court when he faced a charge of stealing her diamond ring. She appears to have disappeared from the face of the earth. Then, of course, Thomas is also the prime suspect in the Yandera Paycar bombing of 1941 that left three men dead. When he reports what he's learned to the CIB chief, Detective Sergeant Jack will be assigned Detective Fred Cray as his partner. The two men will soon be given free reign to find Phyllis Page and Lionel Charles Thomas. Their mission is to be secret. They're to take a ute go in casual wear rather than suits, and look like a couple of blokes on a camping holiday. Given how cagey Thomas can be, they don't want to tip their hand. But as for finding Mrs. Page, in an indication of the expected outcome, Detective Sergeant Jack and Detective Cray are also to take digging equipment. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the third part of the four-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Terrible Mr. Thomas. The final instalment will go on general release soon, but if you're a Patreon supporter or Apple subscriber, you can hear it right now, early and ad-free. Links are in your show notes, and if you use Apple, you can get a three-day free trial to hear the final instalment now without paying a cent. Just cancel before it expires. The narrative you're about to hear in this instalment has been arranged chronologically based on what Detectives Jack and Cray learned from witnesses as they chased after Lionel Charles Thomas. On the 23rd of February 1950, Thomas, calling himself Fred Stevens, gave Abraham Brindley an authorization signed P.M. Page. This was to get 850 of the 1,650 pounds that the solicitor was holding in trust for Phyllis after she sold her Blacktown house through him at Fred's suggestion. Fred used £800 of this cash to buy a cream-coloured Vanguard standard panel van, claiming that Phyllis made him this loan because his own savings were tied up in Rabal. 
Three days later, he got most of the balance of Phyllis's money from Abraham Brindley. Despite these signed authorizations, Phyllis didn't appear to be aware of these transactions. She told her children that her money was still being held in trust by the solicitor. On the 2nd of February, Fred and Phyllis drove away from Blacktown. Their plan was to see southern New South Wales, go to Victoria, stay at his place in Ringwood, get married at some point, return to Blacktown and then visit New Guinea. Their first stop was Goulburn. On the 3rd of February, they were in Canberra, where he got a driver's license in the name of J. Stevens. From Canberra, Fred and Phyllis drove to Cooma, then over Brown Mountain and down south to Pambula and on to Eden. On the 12th of February, they were at Kia, south of Eden, on their way to the Victorian border. In the past week, New South Wales had been hit by heavy rains. The Toowoomba River was flooded and Fred Stevens sat for a while on Kia Bridge looking into its swirling waters. In a remarkable coincidence, Geoffrey and Corinne Black, who'd employed Fred in New Guinea less than a year ago, had since left Rabal and were now running a bakery in Eden. They happened to be driving over the Kia Bridge and Corinne saw Fred looking into the water. Then, the next day, he walked into their bakery and bought two lobsters. Corinne was to say he'd produced a big roll of five and ten pound notes. He told her that he was headed to Sydney and bound for Newmea. When he left the shop, Corinne saw him get into a panel van with a woman that she'd later identify as Phyllis Page. Corinne Black's account would be confined to this interaction and wouldn't reference any past alleged violent behaviour on his part in Rabaul. Two days later, Fred and Phyllis were camped with the van at Narrababa, another 10 miles farther south towards the Victorian border. Before they'd left Blacktown, he'd joked to her children that he'd write them letters telling of their adventures. Now Fred did put pen to paper, but he wasn't writing to Norman and Jean Page. Instead, he was writing in secret to Luba Karamashev. This was the Russian teenager that Norman Page had met and remained pen pals with, the girl whose photo Thomas had seen and whose story he knew. Fred signed his letter Arthur Graham and used his family's home in Ringwood, Victoria as the return address. From the 15th to the 19th of February, Fred and Phyllis remained camped at Narababa. A couple, John and Bridget Gell, remembered them well and were sure of the dates. John, who was a travelling beekeeper, recalled their arrival clearly because his son had to tell Fred that he was in a private camping area and direct him to a public spot down at Old Road Creek. And that was where the couple had parked the van and set up their tent beneath a red fly. Bridget Gell, meanwhile, had kept a daily diary for 25 years and she noted the couple and the van in her journal. Later, she'd positively identify both of them. A farmer named William Allen also saw Fred around this time, carrying a 22 caliber rifle, though he didn't see him with a woman. The beekeeper John Gell said he'd last seen the van and the camp on the evening of Sunday the 19th of February. Next morning, both were gone. Also on the 19th of February, a letter from Phyllis to her children had been posted from the village of Tawamba, which was 15 miles west up the flooded river. 
This letter was cheery, saying how happy she was and how clever Fred was with camping. Phyllis had signed it, Darby and Joan. Darby and Joan, of course, is the English proverbial phrase for an old married couple totally devoted to each other. But two days later, on the 21st of February, Darby was minus his Joan. At 10 o'clock that Tuesday morning, Lionel Charles Thomas turned up in the panel van at the Ringwood house that his sister Florence shared with her husband, the real Frederick Arthur Stevens, and with their aged parents. Thomas's visit was completely out of the blue. His family hadn't seen him for four or five years, which would align with the time he'd walked free after the jury failed to agree at the end of his third trial for the murder of the Carnegie assistant station master, Tom Norwood. Catching up with his family, they'd say Thomas didn't mention a woman named Phyllis. But he did unload things he'd been traveling with. A 22 caliber rifle, an axe, a red tent fly, a couple of camp stretchers. Thomas assured his mother and father that he was on the straight and narrow these days. He suggested to Florence and Fred that they all do some road trips in his panel van. Over the next month or so, they did just that. On these mini camping holidays, Florence said she never got the impression that her brother was hiding anything. While Thomas was roaming around with Florence and Fred, he was engaged in further correspondence with Luba up in Brisbane. She hadn't replied to his first letter. After all, she had no idea who this Arthur Graham was. Besides, she had her hands full. Luba was likely a bit of a scandalous figure in her Brisbane neighbourhood. This young woman, not yet of age, already had an 18-month-old son and another baby on the way. At least in November 1949, she'd gotten married and was now known as Luba Topfer. But Luba and her young husband were already at loggerheads and this made her more vulnerable to an entreaty from a strange man down in Victoria. On the 4th of March 1950, the day before she turned 20, she received a telegram from Arthur Graham. Another letter followed, and Luba answered this one. She told this Arthur that she was married, mother to a young son, and expecting another child. If she expected him to be put off by that, she was wrong. Arthur wrote again. He wanted to come to Brisbane, see her and explain himself. Luba replied. She said she'd asked her husband and he'd said it would be alright for her to meet Arthur. Whether or not that was true, Arthur now had a green light to continue the relationship. He fired off another letter, this one postmarked Orbost, and when Luba wrote back, he sent a telegram asking that she phone him. Luba did, and they arranged to meet at the end of her Brisbane street on the 28th of March. What did this Arthur Graham want with her? He hadn't even told her how he knew her. But even a young woman as naive as Luba appeared to be had to have some inkling Arthur wasn't just a pen pal curious to put her face to her name. In one of his letters, he'd asked the size of her ring finger. On the 25th of March, on the way up to Brisbane, with Florence and Fred along for the ride, Thomas banked £415 in cash and a cheque for £50 at the Commonwealth Bank in Canberra. These monies were to be remitted to Rabal under the name Arthur Graham. Three days later, they arrived in Brisbane. 
Luber met Arthur as arranged on the corner of her street. She was no longer pregnant, having lost the baby. Luba left her son at her sister's place and she and Arthur went for a drive in his panel van. Now she asked him, how did he know her? Arthur replied, I met your mother five years ago while I was in the army and I fell in love with you straight away. I had to talk to your mother about you and she told me to come back in five years. Thomas knew from what Norman Page had told him that Luba's mother had died at the time of her 15th birthday. So it wasn't like Luba could ask her mum about this old admirer, Arthur Graham. But Luba might think that her being with this man was one of the last things her mother had wished for before she died. Thomas, who was now 44, really turned it on for the 20-year-old. He said that in the long years since he'd first laid eyes on Luba, he had lived with other women, but he'd never married because he just loved her too much. Arthur asked if she was happy with her husband. She said no, they fought a lot. Why didn't she leave him then and go to New Guinea? Luba said that was silly, people just didn't do such things. Besides, who would she go with? Arthur said, I'll take you. He knew the place, had worked and lived there. He had a lot of money. He could show her a whole new life. Luba, who'd known this man maybe an hour said she'd think it over and see him tomorrow. The next day, her new friend Arthur came to pick her up in his panel van. They went for a drive, pulled over on the side of the highway and had sex. Her new lover Arthur showed her a three-strand pearl necklace. This, he said, would be worn by his future wife. Arthur showed Luba other precious valuables that he kept in a blue box. There were loose pearls, two wedding bands, and a three-diamond engagement ring. Luba was being swept off her feet, but Arthur had to bring her back down to earth at least temporarily. He had to return to Melbourne, but he said he'd be back in a fortnight or so. Would she run away with him then? Luba said she would. They set the date for their escape as the 13th of April. Thomas drove Florence and Fred back to Melbourne getting there on the 2nd of April. Then, he headed back north in the panel van. On the 11th of April, he was in Sydney at the office of Abraham Brindley. He told his solicitor he wanted to change his name by deed poll to Arthur Graham. Why? Because he'd married that wonderful woman, Phyllis Page. He wanted to make a new start in life, and that meant being able to give her a name that wasn't tainted by his past. Thomas signed some papers in the name of Arthur Graham and provided signature samples. Then he continued north. Two days later, as planned, he picked up Luba. She left her little son with her sister again. But this time she wasn't off for the afternoon. Fred and Luba headed out of Brisbane and drove 140 miles southwest to Stanthorpe. The couple spent the night in a hotel as Mr. and Mrs. Arthur Graham. But Fred wanted to make it real. He gave Luba a wedding ring and said he'd go and find a minister so they could get married. Luba said she couldn't commit bigamy. Fred said if she didn't tell, he wouldn't tell. Yet she wasn't convinced. But she liked that he gave her that beautiful three-strand pearl necklace. 
They drove over the border into New South Wales, stopping at Bendemere, where they stayed in another hotel. Then they continued south, visiting Bathurst and the Janolan Caves. Arthur and Luba slept under an eiderdown in the back of the van. At Katoomba in the Blue Mountains, he posed with other people for a tourist photograph and bought the print. In Sydney, Arthur left Luba in the panel van while he went to see his solicitor in his office opposite Hyde Park. The purpose of this visit wasn't revealed. Upon his return to the van, Luba said she had to go home. She was just missing her little son too terribly. Would he drive her? Arthur, a.k.a. Fred, a.k.a. Thomas, a.k.a. Lionel, got behind the wheel and pointed the panel van north. When they got to Grafton, they stayed overnight in the van. The next morning, the 21st of April, he put Luba on the train. Before she left, she gave him back the wedding ring and the pearl necklace. When she got to Brisbane, Luba's husband would begin divorce proceedings and her little son would soon be put up for adoption. Seeing as though he was in Grafton, Thomas stopped into the jail there to see an old army mate. This was Eric Ridgway, serving the remainder of a short sentence for fraud. He was a painter by trade and he knew Thomas as Fred Stevens. Eric had also known Phyllis. He'd met her through Fred in 1946 and painted her Blacktown house two years later. Eric would say he had plenty of reason to fear Fred Stevens. But now, during this jail visit, they made small talk. Eric asked Fred if he'd married the Russian girl from Brisbane yet. Clearly, his mate had talked about her back in Blacktown. To this question, Fred replied, No, that'll be the day. But Fred did want to get married. If not to Luba, then to someone. Luckily, that blue box that had belonged to Phyllis was still filled with her jewellery. Plenty of shiny things for his next bride-to-be. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Back in Sydney on Sunday, the 23rd of April, 1950, Norman and Jean Page were increasingly worried. They hadn't heard from their mother in over two months and she hadn't sent a present for her grandson's birthday. All of this was completely unlike her. Norman went to the police. It had seemed they told him there wasn't much to worry about and or there wasn't much they could do anyway. Not writing and missing a birthday, these weren't crimes or evidence of foul play. But Norman went to Abraham Brindley's home in Manly that Sunday in tears. He wanted to know if the solicitor knew anything, had heard anything. Clearly Abe did know how to get in touch with Fred. He organised a meeting for the next day. Fred, Norman and Abe met in the solicitor's office and they talked also at a hotel nearby. The accounts of these conversations, as later given by the son and the solicitor, were rather curious. Fred told Norman that he'd married Phyllis on the quiet before they even left Blacktown. Hadn't she told him that? For the past three months, Fred said they'd been travelling all around. Fred was only in Sydney briefly on urgent business. Norman asked, 
Where is my mother? Fred said, She's staying at Adelaide's Gresham Hotel. By this stage, it's not clear how, Norman had learned at least a little of Fred's dodgy background. Likely this was only what was on record for Frederick Arthur Stevens. That is, a break and enter in Melbourne in 1931, for which he'd served time in Pentridge, and the 1946 charge that he'd stolen a diamond ring from a woman named Pearl Jackson, though this hadn't resulted in a conviction. Norman told Fred he knew about his past. He asked if his mother knew. Fred replied, I told Phil everything before we left. She is a good woman and can make me forget. Abraham Brindley was to claim that he'd said to Fred in front of Norman, quote, I have known you for four years, but I have not known you to do anything wrong and my experience of you is that you are straight. Where is the mother? Fred replied, She is all right and there is no need for anybody to worry about her. Later, supposedly again in Norman's presence, the solicitor said to his client, quote, Can't you see the boy is worried about his mother? Why don't you take him over to Adelaide so he can see her? When Fred didn't have a reply for this, Abraham Brindley supposedly warned him, If anything has happened to this woman, I won't stand for you. Yet, according to Norman, Brindley also told him that he was still holding his mother's money in trust. If the solicitor had actually said this, it was a blatant lie. That night, Norman called the Gresham Hotel in Adelaide. There was no Phyllis Page, or Phyllis Stevens, or Phyllis anyone staying with them. Norman relayed this information to Fred. Fred shrugged it off by saying Phyllis had probably just gone to stay with friends at Port Pirie. At this point, you'd think that Norman and Jean Page would have gone back to the police and demanded an investigation. That they didn't suggests that Fred's explanations were more detailed and persuasive than they later sounded in Norman and Abe's accounts. For the time being, it seemed, their fears about their mother had been eased by smooth-talking Fred, and perhaps by Abraham Brindley falsely claiming he still had Phyllis's money in trust. Lionel Charles Thomas had bought himself enough time to get back to Melbourne. But he'd also created a problem for himself by claiming that he and Phyllis had gotten married. At some point, he might be asked to produce a marriage certificate. On the 2nd of May in Melbourne, he sold the panel van quickly to a man in East Brunswick for £725. He banked £650 of this, again to be remitted to Rabal under the name Arthur Graham. On the 7th of May, Thomas told his sister, brother-in-law and parents goodbye. He was going to Western Australia that day. Thomas got the train to Adelaide, arriving on the 8th, and continued to Perth, getting there on the 11th. With no time to waste, he inserted a personal ad in a local paper. It ran along the lines of, Man seeks company of woman with view to matrimony. Thomas quickly reeled in Jean Cheatham, an attractive 28-year-old, then newly estranged from her farmer husband. Introducing himself as Arthur Graham, he maintained his form by almost immediately proposing marriage. This was all a bit fast for Jean. She wasn't willing to become a bigamist, but she was willing to keep seeing the charming Arthur. 
But he wanted more than a fling with Jean. He wanted marriage. On the 15th of May, four days after arriving in Perth, Thomas saw 19-year-old Dorothy Truslove having a milkshake alone in a cafe. She actually looked quite like Luba. He came up to her table, asked if he could join her, got chatting and then walked her back to the guest house where she lived and worked as a maid. When they got there, he asked Dorothy if he could see her the next night. She said yes. Then he asked, Will you marry me? Dorothy said, Don't be silly. I don't even know your name. It's Arthur Graham, he told her. Dorothy next went to the pictures with her new friend Arthur, and he gave her a three-strand pearl necklace. Dorothy took Arthur home to meet her mother, and her mother approved. Arthur showed her an engagement ring with three diamonds and asked Dorothy if she liked it. When she wasn't as impressed as he'd hoped, he engaged a jeweller to have the stones reset into a special ring for his new special lady. Days later, walking by the Swan River in Perth, he produced a blue box. Inside was the new ring. Arthur placed it on Dorothy's finger, even though she hadn't yet agreed to marry him. When are you going to marry me? he asked. Dorothy said, I don't know. So Arthur went to speak to her mother. Afterwards, he saw Dorothy and said, quote, It's all arranged now. We can be married on July 22nd. But at the end of May, Arthur had to go away for work. He sent Dorothy a letter from the little town of Minganew, 350 miles north of Perth, and enclosed £10 for her to spend on shopping. His letter concluded, I am counting the days. Your loving pal and sweetheart, Arthur. Many more mash notes would follow. But on the 5th of July, Thomas wrote to his brother-in-law Fred in Ringwood. Part of the letter read, quote, I assure you, I have not been in any trouble since I came back from New Guinea. I told the old folk I had finished with the crooked staff. I have nothing to run away from. I suppose with my filthy past, I can't hope people would believe me. They think I can't go straight again. When Arthur returned to Perth, he and Dorothy went to see a minister and arranged for their wedding to be at St Peter's Church at Victoria Park at 4pm on Saturday the 22nd of July. That morning, at her mother's house, they'd have their wedding breakfast, and they were expecting 30 guests who'd all received printed invitations. Over in Sydney, in early June, having still not heard from their mother, Norman and Jean Page had finally gone to the police again. This time, Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack interviewed them. They identified Frederick Arthur Stevens as Lionel Charles Thomas. That set off police alarm bells. Detective Jack's first visit on the evidence trail was to solicitor Abraham Brindley. It must have been quite the moment, the reunion of these two bitter antagonists. Abraham Brindley had the right to say nothing that might incriminate him. As a solicitor, he had the right and could claim the duty to protect his client's privacy and protect his interests. But given Detective Jack would have clued him in to who Fred really was and what he might have done, the solicitor may have cooperated off the record just a little. Failure to do so might look very bad for him if this turned out to be foul play. 
Detective Jack was, after his visit to Abraham Brindley, assigned Detective Fred Cray as his partner. In secrecy, they followed the trail. In Canberra, they learned of the new driver's license Thomas had gotten in the name of Jay Stevens, and that he'd banked £425 for remittance to Rabal under the name of Arthur Graham. At Eden, they spoke to Corinne Black, who'd seen Thomas staring into the Toowoomba River on the 12th of February and then served him in the bakery the next day. The detectives spoke to John and Bridget Gell, who'd seen Fred and Phyllis camping between the 15th and 19th of February. They got Mrs. Gell's diary, which contained entries about the couple's arrival. John told them he hadn't seen them again after the evening of the 19th. By the 30th of June, the Sydney CIB detectives were at Ringwood, interviewing Thomas's sister, brother-in-law and parents. They said he'd arrived alone on the 21st of February, and they detailed the road trips they'd taken, including that one to Brisbane to see Luba. It's likely they knew from letters that had arrived at their place from this girl that Thomas had been using Arthur Graham as an alias. The dates weren't in dispute because Florence Stevens also kept a diary, which the detectives took into evidence. They also collected the red tent fly, the 22 caliber rifle and the axe. The officers learned that Thomas had told his family he was going to Western Australia on the 7th of May. That was nearly two months ago now. It could have been a lie. What they needed to do was follow the actual solid evidence trail. Then they'd determine if they needed to go to Perth. The detective spoke to the man in East Brunswick who'd bought the panel van, which was also taken into evidence, and they learned that Thomas had banked £650 in Melbourne to be remitted to Rabal. By the 14th of July, they were in Brisbane, talking to Luba, who told them of her time with Arthur and about the pearl necklace and the engagement ring that he gave to her and that she returned. The detectives had an inventory of the missing woman's belongings, supplied by her children. They knew she'd kept her valuables in a blue box, just like the one Arthur had shown Luba. The items of jewellery, particularly the three-strand pearl necklace and the three-stone diamond engagement ring, sounded identical to those owned by Phyllis Page. By this time, Thomas had written to Fred Stevens and his brother-in-law apparently passed this letter on to the police, complete with its Western Australian postmark. As of the 5th of July at least, their man was still over there. It would seem that the detectives had convinced Thomas's family not to help him. This might have been achieved simply because Florence and Fred had finally realised what sort of man he really was. It also might have been achieved by the detectives making threats. If Florence and Fred didn't cooperate and this turned out to be murder, they would be accessories after the fact. Yet a letter from Florence or Fred to Thomas, or them sending a telegram or picking up the phone if he called, could have sent the police back to square one. Instead, on the 18th of July, the detectives were in Adelaide. From there, they flew to Perth and followed a lead to Minganew. Likely, this was where Fred's letter had been postmarked. They didn't find him there, but they learned he'd told people he was getting married very soon. Under Western Australian law at this time, the names of people about to wed had to be posted up outside the registry office in Perth. And there it was. 
in black and white. Arthur Graham to marry Dorothy Truslove. Not revealing they were detectives, Gordon Jack and Fred Cray called on Dorothy and asked where they might find her fiancé. She told them the Crystal Hostel were getting married tomorrow. At 9.30 that night, Friday the 21st of July, after seven weeks and 10,000 miles, Lionel Charles Thomas walked into room 34 and Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack grabbed him by the arm. There was no way he was letting this joker reach for a gun. No matter what the juries in Melbourne and Sydney had said, the cops believed this man was a shooter. They searched him, turned out his pockets. No pistol. Jean Cheatham, his woman on the side, was outside the hotel room door. He'd intended to spend the night with her before marrying Dorothy Truslove. Jean would be questioned but allowed to go with the clothes she'd kept in his hotel room. In one of Thomas's coat pockets, detectives found a Commonwealth Bank savings book in the name Arthur Graham, Rabal Branch, showing a balance of £1,785. It'd be established that he had other accounts too, for a total of some £2,500. Just adjusted for inflation, that's about $150,000. In his right trouser pocket, he had £130 in cash, equivalent to about $7,500 today. In the hotel room, detectives found that photo of Luba that he'd stolen from Norman Page in Blacktown. They also found the photo of him at Katoomba. And that book, What to Do at Weddings. The police also found assorted jewellery, including two wedding rings. But they didn't find the three-strand pearl necklace or the three-stone diamond engagement ring. By around 10.30, Thomas was at Perth CIB under intense interrogation. He admitted his correct name was Lionel Charles Thomas, but said he'd changed it to Arthur Graham by deed poll. He might have intended to do that, but it didn't seem to have gone through yet, so he was charged with using a false name. This charge was simply a way to detain him and seek an eight-day remand. Detective Sergeant Gordon Jack and Detective Fred Cray had all the time they needed. But really, there was just one question they needed answered. Where is Phyllis Page? Knowing his life depended on the answer, Lionel Charles Thomas began telling his story. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to part three of the four-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Terrible Mr. Thomas. The final instalment will be released very soon on general podcast platforms. But if you're an Apple subscriber or Patreon supporter, you can hear it right now ad-free. Links are in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.